Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret of the dead come back? Chapter 10 when his servant entered, he looked at him steadfastly and wondered if he had thought of peering behind the screen. The man was quite impassive and waited for his orders. Dorian lit a cigarette and walked over to the glass and glanced into it. He could see the reflection of Victor's face perfectly. It was like a placid mask of servility. There was nothing to be afraid of there. Yet he thought it best to be on his guard. Speaking very slowly, he told him to tell the housekeeper that he wanted to see her and then to go to the frame-maker and ask him to send two of his men round at once. It seemed to him that as the man left the room, his eyes wandered in the direction of the screen. Or was that merely his own fancy? After a few moments in her black silk dress with old-fashioned thread mittens on her wrinkled hands, Mrs. Leaf bustled into the library. He asked her for the key of the schoolroom. The old schoolroom, Mr. Dorian, she exclaimed. Why, it's full of dust. I must get it arranged and put straight before you go into it. It's not fit for you to see, sir. It is not indeed. I don't want to put straight leaf. I only want the key. Well, sir, you'll be covered with cobwebs if you go into it. Why, it hasn't been open for nearly five years, not since his lordship died. He winced at the mention of his grandfather. He had hateful memories of him. That does not matter, he answered. I simply want to see the place. That is all. Give me the key. Uh, here is the key, sir, said the old lady, going over to the contents of her bunch with tremulously uncertain hands. It is the key. I'll have it off the bunch in a moment. But you don't think of living up there, sir, and you so comfortable here. No, no, he cried petulantly. Thank you, Leaf. That will do. She lingered for a few moments and was garrulous over some detail of the household. He sighed and told her to manage things as she thought best. She left the room wreathed in smiles. As the door closed, Dorian put the key in his pocket and looked around the room. His eye fell on a large purple satin coverlet heavily embroidered with gold a splendid piece of late-seventeenth-century Venetian work that his grandfather had found in a convent near Bologna. Yes, that would serve to wrap the dreadful thing in. It had, perhaps, served often as a pall for the dead. Now it was to hide something that had a corruption of its own worse than the corruption of death itself, something that would breed horrors and yet would never die. What the worm was to the corpse, his sins would be to the painted image on the canvas. They would mar its beauty and eat away at its grace. They would defile it and make it shameful, and yet the thing would still live on. It would always be alive. He shuddered, and for a moment he regretted that he had not told Basil the true reason why he had wished to hide the picture away. Basil would have helped him to resist Lord Henry's influence, and the still more poisonous influences that came from his own temperament. The love that he bore him, for it was really love, had nothing in it that was not noble and intellectual. It was not that mere physical admiration of beauty that is born of the senses, and that dies when the senses tire. It was such love as Michelangelo had known, and Montaigne, and Winkelmann, 
and Shakespeare himself. Yes, Basil could have saved him. But it was too late now. The past could always be annihilated. Regret, denial or forgetfulness could do that. But the future was inevitable. There were passions in him that would find their terrible outlet, dreams that would make the shadow of their evil real. He took up from the couch the great purple and gold texture that covered it, and holding it in his hands passed behind the screen. Was the face on the canvas viler than before? It seemed to him that it was unchanged, and yet his loathing of it was intensified. Gold hair, blue eyes, and rose-red lips, they all were there. It was simply the expression that had altered. That was horrible in its cruelty. Compared to what he saw in it of censure or rebuke, how shallow Basil's reproaches about Sybil Vane had been. How shallow, and of what little account. His own soul was looking out at him from the canvas and calling him to judgment. A look of pain came across him, and he flung the rich pall over the picture. As he did so, a knock came to the door. He passed out as his servant entered. The persons are here, monsieur. He felt that the man must be got rid of at once. He must not be allowed to know where the picture was being taken to. There was something sly about him, and he had thoughtful, treacherous eyes. Sitting down at the writing table, he scribbled a note to Lord Henry, asking him to send him round something to read, and reminding him that they were to meet at 8.15 that evening. Wait for an answer, he said, handing it to him, and show the men in here. In two or three minutes there was another knock, and Mr. Hubbard himself, the celebrated frame-maker of South Audley Street, came in with a somewhat rough-looking young assistant. Mr. Hubbard was a florid, red-whiskered little man, whose admiration for art was considerably tempered by the inveterate impecuniosity of most of the artists who dealt with him. As a rule, he never left his shop. He waited for people to come to him, but he always made an exception in favour of Dorian Gray. There was something about Dorian that charmed everyone. It was a pleasure even to see him. What can I do for you, Mr. Gray? he said, rubbing his fat, freckled hands. I thought I would do myself the honour of coming round in person. I have just got a beauty of a frame, sir. Picked it up at a sale. Old Florentine. It came from Font Hill, I believe. Admirably suited for a religious subject, Mr. Gray. I am so sorry that you have given yourself the trouble of coming round, Mr. Hubbard. I shall certainly drop in and look at the frame, though I don't go in much at present for religious art. But today I only want a picture carried to the top of the house for me. It's rather heavy, so I thought I would ask you to lend me a couple of your men. No trouble at all, Mr. Gray. I'm delighted to be of any service to you. Which is the work of art, sir? This, replied Dorian, moving the screen back. Can you move it, covering it all, just as it is? I don't want it to get scratched, going upstairs. There will be no difficulty, sir, said the genial frame-maker, beginning, with the aid of his assistant, to unhook the picture from the long brass chains by which it was suspended. And now, where shall we carry it to, Mr. Gray? I will show you the way, Mr. Hubbard, if you will kindly follow me, or perhaps you had better go in front. I am afraid it is right at the top of the house. We will go by the front staircase, as it is wider. He held the door open for them, and they passed out into the hall and began the ascent. 
the elaborate character of the frame had made the picture extremely bulky, and now and then, in spite of the obsequious protests of Mr. Hubbard, who had the true tradesman's spirited dislike of seeing a gentleman doing anything useful, Dorian put his hand to it so as to help them. "'Something of a load to carry, sir?' gasped the little man when they reached the top landing, and he wiped his shiny forehead. "'I'm afraid it is rather heavy,' murmured Dorian, as he unlocked the door that opened into the room that was to keep for him the curious secret of his life and hide his soul from the eyes of men. He had not entered the place for more than four years, not indeed since he had used it first as a playroom when he was a child, and then as a study when he grew somewhat older. It was a large, well-proportioned room, which had been specially built by the last Lord Kelso for the use of the little grandson, whom, for his strange likeness to his mother, and also for other reasons, he had always hated and desired to keep at a distance. It appeared to Dorian to have but little changed. There was the huge Italian cassone with its fantastically painted panels and its tarnished gilt mouldings in which he had so often hidden himself as a boy. There the satinwood bookcase filled with his dog-eared schoolbooks. On the wall behind it was hanging the same ragged Flemish tapestry where a faded king and queen were playing chess in a garden while a company of hawkers rode by carrying hooded birds on their gauntleted wrists. How well he remembered it all. Every moment of his lonely childhood came back to him as he looked round. He recalled the stainless purity of his boyish life, and it seemed horrible to him that it was here that the fatal portrait was to be hidden away. How little he had thought in those dead days of all that was in store for him. But there was no other place in the house so secure from prying eyes as this. He had the key, and no one else could enter it. Beneath its purple pall the face painted on the canvas could grow bestial, sodden, and unclean. What did it matter? No one could see it. He himself would not see it. Why should he watch the hideous corruption of his soul? He kept his youth. That was enough. And besides... Might not his nature grow finer after all? There was no reason that the future should be so full of shame. Some love might come across his life and purify him and shield him from those sins that seemed to be already stirring in spirit and in flesh. Those curious, unpictured sins whose very mystery lent them their subtlety and their charm. Perhaps someday the cruel look would have passed away from the scarlet-sensitive mouth and he might show to the world Basil Hallward's masterpiece. No, that was impossible. Hour by hour, and week by week, the thing upon the canvas was growing old. It might escape the hideousness of sin, but the hideousness of age was in store for it. The cheeks would become hollow or flaccid. Yellow crow's feet would creep round the fading eyes and make them horrible. The hair would lose its brightness. The mouth would gape or droop, would be foolish or gross, as the mouths of old men are. There would be the wrinkled throat, the cold blue-veined hands, the twisted body that he remembered in the grandfather who had been so stern to him in his boyhood. The picture had to be concealed. There was no help for it. Bring it in, Mr. Hubbard, please, he said wearily turning round. 
I'm sorry I kept you so long. I was thinking of something else. Always glad to have a rest, Mr. Gray, answered the frame maker, who was still gasping for breath. Where shall we put it, sir? Oh, anywhere. Here, this'll do. I don't want to have it hung up. Just lean it against the wall, thanks. Might one look at the work of art, sir? Dorian started. It would not interest you, Mr. Hubbard, he said, keeping his eye on the man. He felt ready to leap upon him and fling him to the ground if he dared to lift the gorgeous hanging that concealed the secret of his life. I, I shan't trouble you any more now. I'm much obliged for your kindness in coming round. Not at all, not at all, Mr. Gray. Ever ready to do anything for you, sir? And Mr. Hubbard tramped downstairs, followed by the assistant, who glanced back at Dorian with a look of shy wonder in his rough, uncomely face. He had never seen anyone so marvellous. When the sound of their footsteps had died away, Dorian locked the door and put the key in his pocket. He felt safe now. No one would ever look upon the horrible thing. No eye but his would ever see his shame. On reaching the library, he found it was just after five o'clock and that the tea had been already brought up. On a little table of dark perfumed wood, thickly encrusted with nacre, a present from Lady Radley, his guardian's wife, a pretty professional invalid who had spent the preceding winter in Cairo, was lying a note from Lord Henry, and beside it was a book bound in yellow paper, the cover slightly torn and the edges soiled. A copy of the third edition of the St. James's Gazette had been placed on the tea tray. It was evident that Victor had returned. He wondered if he had met the men in the hall as they were leaving the house and had wormed out of them what they had been doing. He would be sure to miss the picture, had no doubt missed it already while he had been laying the tea things. The screen hadn't been set back, and a blank space was visible on the wall. Perhaps some night he might find him creeping upstairs and trying to force the door of the room. It was a horrible thing to have a spy in one's house. He had heard of rich men who had been blackmailed all their lives by some servant who had read a letter, or overheard a conversation, or picked up a card with an address, or found beneath a pillow a withered flower or a shred of crumpled lace. He sighed, and having poured himself out some tea, opened Lord Henry's note. It was simply to say that he sent him round the evening paper, and a book that might interest him, and that he would be at the club at 8.15. He opened the St. James's languidly and looked through it. A red pencil mark on the fifth page caught his eye. It drew attention to the following paragraph. Inquest on an Actress An inquest was held this morning at the Bell Tavern, Hoxton Road, by Mr. Danby, the district coroner, on the body of Sybil Vane, a young actress recently engaged at the Royal Theatre, Hoban. A verdict of death by misadventure was returned. Considerable sympathy was expressed for the mother of the deceased, who was greatly affected during the giving of her own evidence, and that of Dr. Birrell, who had made the post-mortem examination of the deceased. He frowned, and tearing the paper in two, went across the room and flung the pieces away. How ugly it all was, and how horribly real ugliness made things. He felt a little annoyed with Lord Henry for having sent him the report, and it was certainly stupid of him to have marked it with red pencil. Victor might have read it. The man knew more than enough English for that. Perhaps he had read it, and had begun to suspect something. And yet, what did it matter? 
What had Dorian Gray to do with Sybil Vane's death? There was nothing to fear. Dorian Gray had not killed her. His eye fell on the yellow book that Lord Henry had sent him. What was it, he wondered. He went towards the little pearl-coloured octagonal stand that had always looked to him like the work of some strange Egyptian bees that wrought in silver, and taking up the volume, flung himself into an armchair and began to turn over the leaves. After a few minutes he became absorbed. It was the strangest book that he had ever read. It seemed to him that in exquisite raiment and to the delicate sound of flutes the sins of the world were passing in dumb show before him. Things that he had dimly dreamed of were suddenly made real to him. Things of which he had never dreamed were gradually revealed. It was a novel without a plot and with only one character, being indeed simply a psychological study of a certain young Parisian who spent his life trying to realise in the nineteenth century all the passions and modes of thought that belonged to every century except his own, and to sum up, as it were, in himself, the various moods through which the world spirit had ever passed, loving for their mere artificiality those renunciations that men have unwisely called virtue as much as those natural rebellions that wise men still call sin. The style in which it was written was that curious jewelled style, vivid and obscure at once, full of argot and archaisms, of technical expressions and of elaborate paraphrases, that characterises the work of some of the finest artists of the French school of the symbolists, there were in it metaphors as monstrous as orchids and as subtle in colour. The life of the senses was described in the terms of mystical philosophy. One hardly knew at times whether one was reading the spiritual ecstasies of some medieval saint or the morbid confessions of a modern sinner. It was a poisonous book. The heavy odour of incense seemed to cling about its pages and to trouble the brain. The mere cadence of the sentences, the subtle monotony of their music, so full as it was of complex refrains and movements elaborately repeated, produced in the mind of the lad, as he passed from chapter to chapter, a form of reverie, a malady of dreaming that made him unconscious of the falling day and the creeping shadows. Cloudless and pierced by one solitary star, a copper-green sky gleamed through the windows. He read on by its one light till he could read no more. Then, after his valet had reminded him several times of the lateness of the hour, he got up, and going into the next room, placed the book on the little Florentine table that always stood at his bedside, and began to dress for dinner. It was almost nine o'clock before he reached the club, where he found Lord Henry sitting alone in the morning room looking very much bored. I'm so sorry, Harry, he cried, but really, it's entirely your fault. That book you sent me so fascinated me that I forgot how the time was going. Yes, I thought you'd like it, replied his host, rising from his chair. I didn't say I liked it, Harry. I said it fascinated me. There is a great difference. Ah, you have discovered that, murmured Lord Henry, and they passed into the dining room. Chapter 11 For years Dorian Gray could not free himself from the influence of this book, 
or perhaps it would be more accurate to say that he never sought to free himself from it. He procured from Paris no less than nine large paper copies of the first edition, and had them bound in different colours, so that they might suit his various moods and the changing fancies of a nature, over which he seemed at times to have almost entirely lost control. The hero, the wonderful young Parisian in whom the romantic and the scientific temperaments were so strangely blended, became to him a kind of prefiguring type of himself, and indeed the whole book seemed to him to contain the story of his own life, written before he had lived it. In one point he was more fortunate than the novel's fantastic hero. He never knew, never indeed had any cause to know, that somewhat grotesque dread of mirrors and polished metal surfaces and still water, which came upon the young Parisian so early in his life, and was occasioned by the sudden decay of a bow that had once apparently been so remarkable. It was with an almost cruel joy, and perhaps in nearly every joy, as certainly in every pleasure, cruelty has its place, that he used to read the latter part of the book with its really tragic, if somewhat overemphasized, account of the sorrow and despair of one who had himself lost what in others and the world he had most dearly valued. For the wonderful beauty that had so fascinated Basil Hallward and many others besides him seemed never to leave him. Even those who had heard the most evil things against him, and from time to time strange rumours about his mode of life crept through London and became the chatter of the clubs, could not believe anything to his dishonour when they saw him. He always had the look of one who had kept himself unspotted from the world, Men who talked grossly became silent when Dorian Gray entered the room. There was something in the purity of his face that rebuked them. His mere presence seemed to recall to them the memory of the innocence that they had tarnished. They wondered how one so charming and graceful as he was could have escaped the stain of an age that was at once sordid and sensual. Often, on returning home from one of those mysterious and prolonged absences that gave rise to such strange conjecture among those who were his friends or thought that they were so, he himself would creep upstairs to the locked room, open the door with the key that never left him now, and stand with a mirror in front of the portrait that Basil Howard had painted of him, looking now at the evil and aging face on the canvas, and now at the fair young face that laughed back at him from the polished glass. The very sharpness of the contrast used to quicken his sense of pleasure. He grew more and more enamoured of his own beauty, more and more interested in the corruption of his own soul. He would examine with minute care and sometimes with a monstrous and terrible delight the hideous lines that seared the wrinkling forehead or crawled around the heavy sensual mouth wondering sometimes which were the more horrible, the signs of sin or the signs of age. He would place his white hands beside the coarse bloated hands of the picture and smile. He mocked the misshapen body and the failing limbs. There were moments indeed at night when lying sleepless in his own delicately scented chamber or in the sordid room of the little ill-famed tavern near the docks which, 
under an assumed name and in disguise it was his habit to frequent, he would think of the ruin he had brought upon his soul with a pity that was all the more poignant because it was purely selfish. But moments such as these were rare. That curiosity about life which Lord Henry had first stirred in him as they sat together in the garden of their friend seemed to increase with gratification. The more he knew, the more he desired to know. He had mad hungers that grew more ravenous as he fed them. Yet he was not really reckless, at any rate, in his relations to society. Once or twice every month during the winter, and on each Wednesday evening while the season lasted, he would throw open to the world his beautiful house and have the most celebrated musicians of the day to charm his guests with the wonders of their art. His little dinners, in the settling of which Lord Henry always assisted him, were noted as much for the careful selection and placing of those invited as for the exquisite taste shown in the decoration of the table with its subtle symphonic arrangements of exotic flowers, the embroidered cloths and antique plate of gold and silver. Indeed, there were many, especially among the very young men, who saw, or fancied that they saw, in Dorian Gray the true realisation of a type which they had often dreamed in Eton or Oxford days, a type that was to combine something of the real culture of the scholar with all the grace and distinction and perfect manner of a citizen of the world. To them he seemed to be of the company of those whom Dante describes of having sought to make themselves perfect by the worship of beauty. Like Gautier, he was one for whom the visible world existed, and certainly to him life itself was the first, the greatest of the arts, and for it all the other arts seemed to be but a preparation, fashion, by which what is really fantastic becomes for a moment universal, and dandyism, which in its own way is an attempt to assert the absolute modernity of beauty, had of course their fascination for him. His mode of dressing and the particular styles that from time to time he affected had their marked influence on the young exquisites of the Mayfair balls and the Pall Mall club windows who copied him in everything he did and tried to reproduce the accidental charm of his graceful, though to him only half-serious, fopperies. For, while he was but too ready to accept the position that was almost immediately offered to him on his coming of age, and found indeed a subtle pleasure in the thought that he might really become to the London of his own day what to imperial Neronian Rome the author of the Satyricon had once been. Yet, in his inmost heart, he desired to be something more than the mere arbiter elegantiarum, to be consulted on the wearing of a jewel, or the knotting of a necktie, or the conduct of a cane. He sought to elaborate some new scheme of life that would have its reasoned philosophy and its ordered principles and find in the spiritualizing of the senses its highest realization. The worship of the senses has often, and with much justice, been decried, men feeling a natural instinct of terror about passions and sensations that seem stronger than themselves and that they are conscious of sharing with the less highly organized forms of existence. 
but it appeared to Dorian Gray that the true nature of the senses had never been understood, and that they had remained savage and animal merely because the world had sought to starve them into submission, or to kill them by pain, instead of aiming at making them elements of a new spirituality, of which a fine instinct for beauty was to be the dominant characteristic. As he looked back upon man moving through history, he was haunted by a feeling of loss. So much had been surrendered, and to such little purpose. There had been mad willful rejections, monstrous forms of self-torture and self-denial, whose origin was fear, and whose result was a degradation infinitely more terrible than that fancy degradation from which, in their ignorance, they had sought to escape. Nature, in her wonderful irony, driving out the anchorite to feed with the wild animals of the desert, and giving to the hermit the beasts of the field as his companions. Yes, there was to be, as Lord Henry had prophesied, a new hedonism that was to recreate life and to save it from that harsh, uncomely puritanism that is having in our own day its curious revival. It was to have its service of the intellect, certainly, yet it was never to accept any theory or system that would involve the sacrifice of any mode of passionate experience. Its aim, indeed, was to be experience itself, and not the fruits of experience, sweet or bitter, as they might be. Of the asceticism that deadens the senses, as of the vulgar profligacy that dulls them, it was to know nothing, but it was to teach man to concentrate himself upon the moments of a life that is itself but a moment. There are few of us who have not sometimes wakened before dawn, either after one of those dreamless nights that make us almost enamoured of death, or one of those nights of horror and misshapen joy, when through the chambers of the brain sweep phantoms more terrible than reality itself, an instinct with that vivid life that lurks in all grotesques, and that lends to Gothic art its enduring vitality. This art being, one might fancy, especially the art of those whose minds have been troubled with the malady of reverie. Gradually, white fingers creep through the curtains, and they appear to tremble. In black fantastic shapes, dumb shadows crawl into the corners of the room and crouch there. Outside, there is the stirring of birds among the leaves, or the sound of men going forth to their work, or the sigh and sob of the wind coming down from the hills and wandering round the silent house, as though it feared to wake the sleepers, and yet must needs call forth sleep from her purple cave. Veil after veil of thin dusky gauze is lifted, and by degrees the forms and colours of things are restored to them, and we watch the dawn remaking the world in its antique pattern. The wan mirrors get back their mimic life, the flameless tapers stand where we had left them, and beside them lies the half-cut book that we had been studying, or the wired flower that we had worn at the ball, or the letter that we had been afraid to read.
although we had read too often. Nothing seems to us changed. Out of the unreal shadows of the night comes back the real life that we had known. We have to resume it where we had left off, and there steals over us a terrible sense of the necessity for the continuance of energy in the same wearisome round of stereotyped habits, or a wild longing it may be that our eyelids might open some morning upon a world that had been refashioned anew in the darkness for our pleasure, a world in which things would have fresh shapes and colours and be changed or have other secrets, a world in which the past would have little or no place or survive at any rate in no conscious form of obligation or regret, the remembrance even of joy having its bitterness and the memories of pleasure their pain. It was the creation of such worlds as these that seemed to Dorian Gray to be the true object or amongst the true objects of life, and in his search for sensations that would at once be new and delightful and possess that element of strangeness that is so essential to romance, he would often adopt certain modes of thought that he knew to be really alien to his nature, abandon himself to their subtle influences, and then, having as it were caught their colour, and satisfied his intellectual curiosity, leave them with that curious indifference that is not incompatible with a real ardour of temperament, and that, indeed, according to certain modern psychologists, is often a condition of it. It was rumoured of him once that he was about to join the Roman Catholic communion, and certainly the Roman ritual had always a great attraction for him, the daily sacrifice, more awful really than all the sacrifices of the antique world, stirred him as much by its superb rejection of the evidence of the senses as by the primitive simplicity of its elements and the eternal pathos of the human tragedy that it sought to symbolise. He loved to kneel down on the cold marble pavement and watch the priest in his stiff flowered dalmatic slowly and with white hands moving aside the veil of the tabernacle, or raising aloft the jewelled, lantern-shaped monstrance with that pallid wafer, that at times one would fain think is indeed the panis caelestis, the bread of angels, or robed in the garments of the Passion of Christ, breaking the host into the chalice and smiting his breast for his sins, the fuming senses that the grave boys in their lace and scarlet tossed into the air like great gilt flowers had their subtle fascination for him. As he passed out, he used to look with wonder at the black confessionals and long to sit in the dim shadow of one of them and listen to men and women whispering through the worn grating the true story of their lives but he never fell into the error of arresting his intellectual development by any formal acceptance of creed or system, or of mistaking for a house in which to live an inn that is but suitable for the sojourn of a night, or a few hours of a night in which there are no stars and the moon is in travail. Mysticism, with its marvellous power of making common things strange to us, and the subtle antinomianism that always seems to accompany it moved him for a season, and for a season 
inclined to the materialistic doctrines of the Darwinismus movement in Germany, and found a curious pleasure in tracing the thoughts and passions of men to some pearly cell in the brain, or some white nerve in the body, delighting in the conception of the absolute dependence of the spirit on certain physical conditions, morbid or healthy, normal or diseased. Yet, as it has been said of him before, no theory of life seemed to him to be of any importance compared with life itself. He felt keenly conscious of how barren all intellectual speculation is when separated from action and experiment. He knew that the senses no less than the soul have their spiritual mysteries to reveal, and so he would now study perfumes and the secrets of their manufacture, distilling heavily scented oils and burning odorous gums from the east. He saw that there was no mood of the mind that had not its counterpart in the sensuous life, and set himself to discover their true relations, wondering what there was in frankincense that made one mystical, and in ambergris that stirred one's passions, and in violets that woke the memory of dead romances, and in musk that troubled the brain, and in champac that stained the imagination, and seeking often to elaborate a real psychology of perfume, and to estimate the several influences of sweet-smelling roots and scented pollen-laden flowers, of aromatic balms and of dark and fragrant woods, of spikenard that sickens, of avenia that makes men mad, and of aloes that are said to be able to expel melancholy from the soul. At another time he devoted himself entirely to music, and in a long latticed room with a vermilion and a gold ceiling and walls of olive-green lacquer, he used to give curious concerts in which mad gypsies tore wild music from little zithers, or grave yellow-shawled Tunisians plucked at the strained strings of monstrous lutes, while grinning negroes beat monotonously upon copper drums, and crouching upon scarlet mats, slim turbaned Indians blew through long pipes of reed or brass, and charmed, or feigned to charm, great hooded snakes and horrible horned adders. The harsh intervals and shrill discords of barbaric music stirred him at times when Schubert's grace and Chopin's beautiful sorrows and the mighty harmonies of Beethoven himself fell unheeded on his ear. They collected together from all parts of the world the strangest instruments that could be found, either in the tombs of dead nations or among the few savage tribes that have survived contact with Western civilizations and loved to touch and try them. He had the mysterious Juju Paris of the Rio Negro Indians that women are not allowed to look at and that even youths may not see until they have been subjected to fasting and scourging, and the earthen jars of the Peruvians that have the shrill cries of birds, and flutes of human bones such as Alfonso de Avale heard in Chile, and the sonorous green jaspers that are found near Cuzco and give forth a note of singular sweetness. He had painted gourds filled with pebbles that rattled when they were shaken, the long clarin of the Mexicans into which the performer does not blow, but through which he inhales the air, the harsh toure of the Amazon tribes that is surrounded by the sentinels who sit all day long in high trees, and can be heard, it is said, at a distance of three leagues, the teponastli that has two vibrating tongues of wood, and is beaten with sticks that are smeared with an elastic gum obtained from the milky juice of plants, 
the yokel bells of the Aztecs that are hung in clusters like grapes, and a huge cylindrical drum covered with the skins of great serpents like the one that Bernal Diaz saw when he went with Cortes into the Mexican temple, and of whose doleful sound he has left us so vivid a description. The fantastic character of these instruments fascinated him, and he felt a curious delight in the thought that art, like nature, has her monsters, things of bestial shape and with hideous voices. Yet, after some time, he wearied of them, and would sit in his box at the opera, either alone or with Lord Henry, listening in rapt pleasure to Tannhauser, and seeing in the prelude to that great work of art a presentation of the tragedy of his own soul. On one occasion, he took up the study of jewels and appeared at a costume ball as Anne de Joyeuse, Admiral of France, in a dress covered with 560 pearls. This taste enthralled him for years, and indeed may be said never to have left him. He would often spend a whole day settling and resettling in their cases the various stones that he had collected, such as the olive-green chrysoberyl that turns red by lamplight, the simophane with its wire-like line of silver, the pistachio-coloured peridot, rose-pink and wine-yellow topazes, carbuncles of fiery scarlet with tremulous forayed stars, flame-red cinnamon stones, orange and violet spinels, and amethysts with their alternate layers of ruby and sapphire. He loved the red gold of the sunstone, and the moonstone's pearly whiteness, and the broken rainbow of the milky opal. He procured from Amsterdam three emeralds of extraordinary size and richness of colour, and had a turquoise de la vieille roche that was the envy of all the connoisseurs. He discovered wonderful stories also about jewels. In Alfonso's Clericalis Disciplina, a serpent was mentioned with eyes of real jacinth, and in the romantic history of Alexander, the conqueror of Amathia was said to have found in the Vale of Jordan snakes with collars of real emeralds growing on their back. There was a gem in the brain of the dragon, Philostratus told us, and by the exhibitions of golden letters and a scarlet robe, the monster could be thrown into a magical sleep and slain. According to the great alchemist Pierre de Boniface, the diamond rendered a man invisible, and the agate of India made him eloquent. The cornelian appeased anger, and the hyacinth provoked sleep, and the amethyst drove away the fumes of wine. The garnet cast out demons, and the hydropicus deprived the moon of her colour. The selenite waxed and waned with the moon, and the melosius that discovers thieves could be affected only by the blood of kids. Leonardus Carmillus had seen a white stone taken from the brain of a newly killed toad that was a certain antidote against poison. The bezoar that was found in the hearts of the Arabian deer was a charm that could cure the plague. In the nests of Arabian birds was the Aspilates that, according to Democritus, kept the wearer from any danger by fire. The king of Ceylon rode through his city with a large ruby in his hand as the ceremony of his coronation. The gates of the palace of John the priest were made of sardius with the horn of the horned snake inwrought so that no man might bring poison within. 
Over the gable were two golden apples, in which were two carbuncles, so that the gold might shine by day, and the carbuncles by night. In Lodge's strange romance, A Marguerite of America, it was stated that in the chamber of the queen one could behold all the chaste ladies of the world in chaste out of silver, looking through fair mirrors of chrysolites, carbuncles, sapphires and green emeralds. Marco Polo had seen the inhabitants of Zipangu place rose-coloured pearls in the mouths of the dead. A sea monster had been enamoured of the pearl that the diver brought to King Perosis and had slain the thief and mourned for seven moons over its loss. When the Huns lured the king into the great pits, he flung it away, Procopius tells the story, nor was it ever found again, though the emperor Anastasius offered a five hundred weight of gold pieces for it. The king of Malabar had shown to a certain Venetian a rosary of three hundred and four pearls, one for every god that he worshipped. When the Duke de Valentinois, son of Alexander VI, visited Louis Twelfth of France, his horse was loaded with gold leaves, according to Brantum, and his cap had double rows of rubies that threw out a great light. Charles of England had ridden in stirrups hung with 421 diamonds. Richard II had a coat valued at 30,000 marks, which was covered with ballast rubies. Hall described Henry VIII on his way to the tower previous to his coronation as wearing a jacket of raised gold a placard embroidered with diamonds and other rich stones, and a great baudric about his neck of large balasses. The favourites of James I wore earrings of emerald set in gold filigrane. Edward II gave to Piers Gaveston a suit of red-gold armour studded with jacinths, a collar of gold roses set with turquoise stones, and a skull-cap parsem with pearls. Henry II wore jewelled gloves reaching to the elbow and had a hawk glove sewn with twelve rubies and fifty-two great orients. The ducal hat of Charles the Rash, the last Duke of Burgundy of his race, was hung with pear-shaped pearls and studded with sapphires. How exquisite life had once been! How gorgeous in its pomp and decoration! Even to read of the luxury of the dead was wonderful. Then he turned his attention to embroideries and to the tapestries that performed the office of frescoes in the chill rooms of the northern nations of Europe. As he investigated the subject, and he always had an extraordinary faculty of becoming absolutely absorbed for the moment in whatever he took up, he was almost saddened by the reflection of the ruin that time brought on beautiful and wonderful things. He, at any rate had escaped that. Summer followed summer, and the yellow jonquils bloomed and died many times, and nights of horror repeated the story of their shame. But he was unchanged. No winter marred his face or stained his flower-like bloom. How different it was with material things. Where had they passed to? Where was the great crocus-coloured robe on which the gods fought against the giants that had been worked by brown girls for the pleasure of Athena? Where the huge velarium that Nero had stretched across the Colosseum at Rome, that titan sail of purple on which was represented the starry sky and Apollo driving a chariot drawn by white, 
gilt-reined steeds. He longed to see the curious table napkins wrought for the priest of the sun, on which were displayed all the dainties and viands that could be wanted for a feast. The mortuary cloth of King Chilperic, with its three hundred golden bees, the fantastic robes that excited the indignation of the Bishop of Pontus, and were figured with lions, panthers, bears, dogs, forests, rocks, hunters, all, in fact, that a painter can copy from nature, and the coat that Charles d'Orlaine once wore, on the sleeves of which were embroidered the verses of a song beginning, Madame, Madame, je suis tout joyeux, the musical accompaniment of the words being wrought in gold thread, and each note of square shape in those days formed with four pearls. He read of the room that was prepared at the palace in Rheims for the use of Queen Joan of Burgundy, and was decorated with thirteen hundred and twenty-one parrots made in broidery and blazoned with the king's arms, and five hundred and sixty-one butterflies, whose wings were similarly ornamented with the arms of the queen, the whole worked in gold. Catherine de' Medici had a morning bed made for her of black velvet, powdered with crescents and suns. Its curtains were of damask, with leafy wreaths and garlands, figured upon a gold and silver ground, and fringed along the edges with broideries of pearls, and it stood in a room hung with rows of the Queen's devices in cut black velvet upon cloth of silver. Louis XIV had gold-embroidered caryatides fifteen feet high in his apartment. The state bed of Sobieski, King of Poland, was made of Smyrna gold brocade embroidered in turquoises with verses from the Koran. Its supports were of silver gilt, beautifully chased, and profusely set with enameled and jewelled medallions. It had been taken from the Turkish camp before Vienna, and the standard of Mohammed had stood beneath the tremulous gilt of its canopy. And so, for a whole year, he sought to accumulate the most exquisite specimens that he could find of textiles and embroidered work, getting the dainty Delhi muslins finely wrought with gold-thread palmates and stitched over with iridescent beetles' wings, the dacca gauzes that from their transparency are known in the East as woven air and running water and evening dew, strange-figured cloths from Java, elaborate yellow Chinese hangings, books bound in tawny satins or fair blue silks and wrought with fleur-de-lis, birds and images, veils of lacquis worked in Hungary point, Sicilian brocades and stiff Spanish velvets, Georgian work with its gilt coins and Japanese fukusas, with their green-toned golds and their marvellously plumaged birds. He had a special passion also for ecclesiastical vestments, as indeed he had for everything connected with the service of the church. In the long cedar chests that lined the west gallery of his house, he had stored away many rare and beautiful specimens of what is really the raiment of the Bride of Christ, who must wear purple and jewels and fine linen, that she may hide the pallid, macerated body that is worn by the suffering that she seeks for and wounded by self-inflicted pain. He possessed a gorgeous cope of crimson silk and gold-thread damask, figured with a repeating pattern of golden pomegranates set in six-petaled formal blossoms, beyond which on either side was the pineapple device wrought in seed pearls. 
The orphreys were divided into panels representing the scenes from the life of the Virgin, and the coronation of the Virgin was figured in coloured silks upon the hood. This was Italian work of the 15th century. Another cope was of green velvet embroidered with heart-shaped groups of acanthus leaves, from which spread long-stemmed white blossoms, the details of which were picked out with silver thread and coloured crystals. The morse bore a seraph's head in gold thread raised work. The orphreys were woven in a diaper of red and gold silk and were starred with medallions of many saints and martyrs, among whom was Saint Sebastian. He had chasubles also of amber-coloured silk, and blue silk and gold brocade, and yellow silk damask and cloth of gold, figured with representations of the passion and crucifixion of Christ, and embroidered with lions and peacocks and other emblems, dalmatics of white satin and pink silk damask, decorated with tulips and dolphins and fleur-de-lis, altar frontals of crimson velvet and blue linen and many corporals, chalice veils, and sudaria. In the mystic offices to which such things were put, there was something that quickened his imagination. For these treasures, and everything that he collected in his lovely house, were to be to him means of forgetfulness, modes by which he could escape for a season from the fear that seemed to him at times to be almost too great to be borne. Upon the walls of the lonely locked room where he had spent so much of his boyhood, he had hung with his own hands the terrible portrait whose changing features showed him the real degradation of his life, and in front of it had draped the purple and gold pall as a curtain. For weeks he would not go there and would forget the hideous painted thing and go back to his light heart, his wonderful joyousness, his passionate absorption in mere existence. Then suddenly, some night, he would creep out of the house, go down to dreadful places near Blue Gate Fields, and stay there day after day until he was driven away. On his return, he would sit in front of the picture times, with that pride of individualism that is half the fascination of sin, and smiling with secret pleasure at the misshapen shadow that had to bear the burden that should have been his own. After a few years he could not endure to be long out of England, and he gave up the villa that he shared at Trueville with Lord Henry, as well as a little white walled-in house at Algiers, where they had more than once spent the winter. He hated to be separated from the picture that was such a part of his life, and was also afraid that during his absence someone might gain access to the room in spite of the elaborate bars that he had caused to be placed upon the door. He was quite conscious that this would tell him nothing, it was true that the portrait still preserved, under all the foulness and ugliness of the face, its marked likeness to himself. But what could they learn from that? He would laugh at anyone who tried to taunt him. He had not painted him. What was it to him how vile and full of shame it looked? Even if he told them, would they believe it? Yet he was afraid. Sometimes when he was down at his great house in Nottinghamshire, entertaining the fashionable young men of his own rank who were his chief companions, and astounding the county by the wanton luxury and gorgeous splendour of his mode of life, he would suddenly leave his guests and rush back to town to see that the door had not been tampered with and that the picture was still there. What if it should be stolen? 
The mere thought made him cold with horror. Surely the world would know his secret then. Perhaps the world already suspected it. For while he fascinated many, there were not a few who distrusted him. He was very nearly blackballed at a West End club, of which his birth and social position fully entitled him to become a member, and it was said that on one occasion, when he was brought by a friend into the smoking room of the Churchill, the Duke of Berwick and another gentleman got up in a marked manner and went out. Curious stories became current about him after he had passed his twenty-fifth year. It was rumoured that he had been seen brawling with foreign sailors in a low den in the distant parts of Whitechapel, and that he consorted with thieves and coiners and knew the mysteries of their trade. His extraordinary absences became notorious, and when he used to appear again in society, men would whisper to each other in corners, or pass him with a sneer, or look at him with cold, searching eyes, as though they were determined to discover his secret. Of such insolences and attempted slights he, of course, took no notice, and in the opinion of most people, his frank debonair manner, his charming boyish smile, and the infinite grace of that wonderful youth that never seemed to leave him were in themselves a sufficient answer to the calumnies, for so they termed them, that were circulated about him. It was remarked, however, that some of those who had been most intimate with him appeared after a time to shun him. Women who had wildly adored him and for his sake had braved all social censure and set convention at defiance were seen to grow pallid with shame or horror if Dorian Gray entered the room. Yet these whispered scandals only increased in the eyes of many his strange and dangerous charm. His great wealth was a certain element of security. Society, civilised society at least, is never very ready to believe anything to the detriment of those who are both rich and fascinating. It feels instinctively that manners are of more importance than morals, and in its opinion the highest respectability is of much less value than the possession of a good chef. And after all, it is a very poor consolation to be told that the man who has given one a bad dinner or poor wine is irreproachable in his private life. Even the cardinal virtues cannot atone for half-cold entrees, as Lord Henry remarked once in a discussion on the subject, and there is possibly a good deal to be set for this view, for the canons of good society are, or should be, the same as the canons of art. Form is absolutely essential to it. It should have the dignity of a ceremony as well as its unreality, and should combine the insincere character of a romantic play with the wit and beauty that make such plays delightful to us. Is insincerity such a terrible thing? I think not. It is merely a method by which we can multiply our personalities. Such at any rate was Dorian Gray's opinion. He used to wonder at the shallow psychology of those who conceive the ego in man as a thing simple, permanent, reliable and of one essence. To him, man was a being with myriad lives and myriad sensations, a complex, multiform creature that bore within itself strange legacies of thought and passion, and whose very flesh was tainted with the monstrous maladies of the dead. He loved to stroll through the gaunt, cold picture gallery of his country house and look at the various portraits of those whose blood flowed in his veins. Here was Philip Herbert, 
described by Francis Osborne in his memoirs on the reigns of Queen Elizabeth and King James as one who was caressed by the court for his handsome face, which kept him not long company. Was it young Herbert's life that he sometimes led? Had some strange poisonous germ crept from body to body till it had reached his own? Was it some dim sense of that ruined grace that had made him so suddenly and almost without cause give utterance in Basil Hallward's studio to the mad prayer that had so changed his life? Here, in the gold-embroidered red doublet, jewelled surcoat and gilt-edged rough-and-wristband, stood Sir Anthony Sherard, with his silver and black armour piled at his feet. What had this man's legacy been? Had the lover of Giovanna of Naples bequeathed him some inheritance of sin and shame? Or his own actions merely the dreams that the dead man had not dared to realise? Here, from the fading canvas smiled Lady Elizabeth Devereux in her gauze hood, pearl stomacher and pink slashed sleeves. A flower was in her right hand, and her left clasped an enamelled collar of white and damask roses. On a table by her side lay a mandolin and an apple. There were large green rosettes upon her little pointed shoes. He knew her life and the strange stories that were told about her lovers. Had he something of her temperament in him? These oval, heavy-lidded eyes seemed to look curiously at him. What of George Willoughby, with his powdered hair and fantastic patches? How evil he looked! The face was saturnine and swarthy, and the sensual lips seemed to be twisted with disdain. Delicate lace ruffles fell over the lean yellow hands that were so overladen with rings. He had been a macaroni of the eighteenth century, and the friend in his youth of Lord Ferrars. What of the second Lord Beckenham, the companion of the Prince Regent in his wildest days, and one of the witnesses of the secret marriage with Mrs. Fitzherbert? How proud and handsome he was, with his chestnut curls and insolent pose. What passions had he bequeathed? The world had looked upon him as infamous. He had led the orgies at Carlton House. The star of the garter glittered upon his breast. Beside him hung the portrait of his wife, a pallid, thin-lipped woman in black. Her blood also stirred within him. How curious it all seemed. And his mother, with her Lady Hamilton face and her moist, wine-dashed lips, he knew what he had got from her. He had got from her his beauty and his passion for the beauty of others. She laughed at him in her loose bacante dress. There were vine leaves in her hair. The purple spilled from the cup she was holding. The carnations of the painting had withered, but the eyes were still wonderful in their depth and brilliancy of colour. They seemed to follow him wherever he went. Yet... One had ancestors in literature as well as in one's own race, nearer perhaps in type and temperament, many of them, and certainly with an influence of which one was more absolutely conscious. There were times when it appeared to Dorian Gray that the whole of history was merely the record of his own life, not as he had lived it in act and circumstance, but as his imagination had created it for him, as it had been in his brain and in his passions. He felt that he had known them all, those strange, terrible figures that had passed across the stage of the world and made sin 
so marvellous, and evil so full of subtlety. It seemed to him that in some mysterious way their lives had been his own. The hero of the wonderful novel that had so influenced of his life had himself known this curious fancy. In the seventh chapter, he tells us how, crowned with laurel, lest lightning might strike him, he had sat as Tiberius in a garden at Capri, reading the shameful books of Elephantis, while dwarves and peacocks strutted around him, and the flute player mocked the swinger of the censer, and as Caligula had caroused with the green-shirted jockeys in their stables, and supped in an ivory manger with a jewel-frontled horse, and as Domitian had wandered through a corridor lined with marble mirrors looking round with haggard eyes for the reflection of the dagger that was to end his days, and sick with that ennui, that terrible tedium vitae that comes on those to whom life denies nothing, and had peered through a clear emerald at the red shambles of the circus, and then in a litter of pearl and purple drawn by silver-shod mules, been carried through the street of pomegranates to a house of gold, and heard men cry on Nero Caesar as he passed by. And as Elagabalus had painted his face with colours, and plied the distaff among the women, and brought the moon from Carthage, and given her in mystic marriage to the sun, over and over again, Dorian used to read this fantastic chapter and the two chapters immediately following in which, as in some curious tapestries or cunningly wrought enamels, were pictured the awful and beautiful forms of those whom vice and blood and weariness had made monstrous or mad. Filippo, Duke of Milan, who slew his wife and painted her lips with a scarlet poison that her lover might suck death from the dead thing he fondled, Pietro Barbi, the Venetian known as Paul II, who had sought in his vanity to assume the title of Formosus, and whose tiara, valued at 200,000 florins, was bought at the price of a terrible sin. Gian Maria Visconti, Gian Maria Visconti, who used hounds to chase living men, and whose murdered body was covered with roses by a harlot who had loved him. The Borgia, on his white horse with fratricide riding beside him, and his mantle stained with the blood of Perotto. Pietro Riario, the young cardinal archbishop of Florence, child and minion of Sixtus IV, whose beauty was equalled only by his debauchery, and who received Leonora of Aragon in a pavilion of white and crimson silk filled with nymphs and centaurs, and gilded a boy, that he might serve at the feast as Ganymede or Hylas, Etzelin, whose melancholy could be cured only by the spectacle of death, and who had a passion for red blood as other men have for red wine, the son of the fiend, as it was reported, and one who had cheated his father at dice when gambling with him for his own soul, Giambattista Cibo, who in mockery took the name of Innocent, and into whose torpid veins the blood of three lads was infused by a Jewish doctor. Sigismondo Malatesta, the lover of Isotta and the lord of Rimini, whose effigy was burned at Rome as the enemy of God and man, who strangled Polycena with a napkin, and gave poison to Ginevra d'Est in a cup of emerald, and in honour of a shameful passion built a pagan church for Christian worship. Charles the Sixth 
who had so wildly adored his brother's wife that a leper had warned him of the insanity that was coming upon him, and who, when his brain had sickened and grown strange, could only be soothed by Saracen cards painted with the images of love and death and madness, and in his trim jerkin and jewelled cap and acanthus-like curls, Griffonetto Balioni, who slew Astore with his bride and Simonetto with his page, and whose comeliness was such that as he lay dying in the yellow piazza of Perugia, those who had hated him could not choose but weep, and Atalanta, who had cursed him, blessed him. There was a horrible fascination in them all. He saw them at night, and they troubled his imagination in the day. The Renaissance knew of strange manners of poisoning, poisoning by a helmet and a lighted torch, by an embroidered glove and a jewelled fan, by a gilded pomander and by an amber chain. Dorian Gray had been poisoned by a book. There were moments when he looked on evil simply as a mode through which he could now realise his conception of the beautiful. Chapter 12 It was on the 9th of November, the eve of his own 38th birthday, as he often remembered afterwards. He was walking home about eleven o'clock from Lord Henry's where he had been dining, and was wrapped in heavy furs as the night was cold and foggy. At the corner of Grosvenor Square and South Audley Street, a man passed him in the mist, walking very fast and with the collar of his grey ulster turned up. He had a bag in his hand. Dorian recognised him. It was Basil Hallward. A strange sense of fear, for which you could not account, came over him. He made no sign of recognition and went on quickly in the direction of his own house. But Hallward had seen him. Dorian heard him first stopping on the pavement and then hurrying after him. In a few moments his hand was on his arm. Dorian! What an extraordinary piece of luck! I have been waiting for you in your library ever since nine o'clock. Finally I took pity on your tired servant and told him to go to bed as he let me out. I'm off to Paris by the midnight train, and I particularly wanted to see you before I left. I thought it was you, or rather your fur coat, as you passed me. But I wasn't quite sure. Didn't you recognise me? Uh, in this fog, my dear Basil, why, I can't even recognise Grosvenor Square. I believe my house is somewhere about here, but I don't feel at all certain about it. I'm sorry you're going away, as I haven't seen you for ages, but I suppose you'll be back soon. No, I'm going to be out of England for six months. I intend to take a studio in Paris and shut myself up till I've finished a great picture I have in my head. However, it wasn't about myself I wanted to talk. Here we are at your door. Let me come in for a moment. I have something to say to you. I shall be charmed, but won't you miss your train? said Dorian Gray languidly, as he passed up the steps and opened the door with his latchkey. The lamplight struggled out through the fog, and Hallward looked at his watch. I have heaps of time, he answered. The train doesn't go till twelve-fifteen, and it's only just eleven. In fact, I was on my way to the club to look for you when I met you. You see, I shan't have any delay about luggage, as I've sent on my heavy things. All I have with me is in this bag, and I can easily get to Victoria in twenty minutes. Dorian looked at him and smiled. What a way for a fashionable painter to travel. A Gladstone bag and an Ulster. Come in or the fog will get into the house. And mind you don't talk about anything serious. Nothing is serious nowadays. At least nothing should be. 
Hallward shook his head as he entered and followed Dorian into the library. There was a bright wood fire blazing in the large open hearth. The lamps were lit and an open Dutch silver spirit case stood with some siphons of soda water and large cut glass tumblers on a little marquetry table. You see, your servant made me quite at home, Dorian. He gave me everything I wanted, including your best gold-tipped cigarettes. He's a most hospitable creature. I like him much better than the Frenchman you used to have. What has become of the Frenchman, by the by? Dorian shrugged his shoulders. I believe he married Lady Radley's maid and has established her in Paris as an English dressmaker. Anglomania is very fashionable over there now, I hear. It seems silly of the French, doesn't it? But, do you know, he wasn't at all a bad servant. I never liked him, but I had nothing to complain about. One often imagines things that are quite absurd. He was really very devoted to me and seemed quite sorry when he went away. Have another brandy and soda, or would you like a hock and seltzer? I always take the hock and seltzer myself. There's sure to be some in the next room. Thanks, I won't have anything more, said the painter, taking his cap and coat off and throwing them on the bag that he had placed in the corner. And now, my dear fellow, I want to speak to you seriously. Don't frown like that. You make it so much more difficult for me. What is it all about? cried Dorian in his petulant way, flinging himself down on the sofa. I hope it's not about myself. I'm tired of myself tonight. I should like to be somebody else. It is about yourself, answered Hallward in his grave, deep voice, and I must say it to you. I shall only keep you half an hour. Dorian sighed and lit a cigarette. Half an hour, he murmured. It's not much to ask of you, Dorian, and it is entirely for your own sake that I am speaking. I think it right that you should know that the most dreadful things are being said against you in London. I don't wish to know anything about them. I love scandals about other people, but scandals about myself don't interest me. They have not got the charm of novelty. They must interest you, Dorian. Every gentleman is interested in his good name. You don't want people to talk of you as something vile and degraded. Of course, you have your position and your wealth and all that kind of thing. But position and wealth are not everything. Mind you, I don't believe these rumours at all. At least I can't believe them when I see you. Sin is a thing that writes itself across a man's face. It cannot be concealed. People talk sometimes of secret vices. There are no such things. If a wretched man has a vice, it shows itself in the lines of his mouth, the droop of his eyelids, the moulding of his hands even. Somebody, I, I won't mention his name, but you know him, came to me last year to have his portrait done. I had never seen him before and had never heard anything about him at the time, though I have heard a great deal since. He offered an extravagant price. I refused him. There was something in the shape of his fingers that I hated. I know now that I was quite right in what I fancied about him. His life is dreadful. But you, Dorian, with your pure, bright, innocent face and your marvellous, untroubled youth, I can't believe anything against you. And yet I see you very seldom, and you never come down to the studio now. And when I'm away from you and I hear all these hideous things that people are whispering about you, I don't know what to say. Why is it, Dorian that a man like the Duke of Berwick leaves the room of a club when you enter it. Why is it that so many gentlemen in London will neither go to your house or invite you to theirs? You used to be a friend of Lord Staveley. I met him at dinner last week. Your name happened to come up in conversation in connection with the miniatures you have lent to the exhibition at Dudley. Staveley curled his lip and said that you might have the most artistic tastes, 
but that you were a man whom no pure-minded girl should be allowed to know, and whom no chaste woman should sit in the same room with. I reminded him that I was a friend of yours, and asked him what he meant. He told me. He told me right out before everybody. It was horrible. Why is your friendship so fatal to young men? There was that wretched boy in the guards who committed suicide. You were his great friend. There was Sir Henry Ashton, who had to leave London with a tarnished name. You and he were inseparable. What about Adrian Singleton and his dreadful end? What about Lord Kent's only son and his career? I met his father yesterday in St. James Street. He seemed broken with shame and sorrow. What about the young Duke of Perth? What sort of life has he got now? What gentleman would associate with him? Stop, Basil. You're talking about things of which you know nothing, said Dorian Gray, biting his lip and with a note of infinite contempt in his voice. You ask me why Berwick leaves the room when I enter it. It is because I know everything about his life and not because he knows anything about mine. With such blood as he with such blood as he has in his veins, how could his record be clean? You ask me about Henry Ashton and young Perth. Did I teach the one his vices and the other his debauchery? If Kent's silly son takes his wife from the streets, what is that to me? If Adrian Singleton writes his friend's name across a bill, am I his keeper? I know how people chatter in England. The middle classes air their moral prejudices over their gross dinner tables and whisper about what they call the profligacies of their betters in order to try and pretend that they are in smart society and on intimate terms with the people they slander. In this country it's enough for a man to have distinction and brains for every common tongue to wag against him. And what sort of lives do these people who pose as being moral lead themselves? My dear fellow, you forget that we are in the native land of the hypocrite. Dorian, cried Hallward, that is not the question. England's bad enough, I know, and English society is all wrong. That's the reason why I want you to be fine. You have not been fine. One has a right to judge a man by the effect he has over his friends. You always seem to lose all sense of honour, of goodness, of purity. You have filled them with a madness for pleasure. They have gone down into the depths. You led them there. Yes, you led them there. And yet, you can smile as you're smiling now. And there is worse behind. I know you and Harry are inseparable. Surely for that reason, if for none other, you should not have made his sister's name a byword. Take care, Basil. You go too far. I must speak. And you must listen. You shall listen. When you met Lady Gwendolen, not a breath of scandal had ever touched her. Is there a single decent woman in London now who would drive with her in the park? Why, even her children are not allowed to live with her. Then there are other stories, stories that you have been seen creeping at dawn out of dreadful houses and slinking in disguise into the foulest dens in London. Are they true? Can they be true? When I first heard them I laughed. I hear them now. And they make me shudder. What about your country house and the life that's led there? Dorian... You don't know what is said about you. I won't tell you that I don't want to preach to you. I remember Harry saying once that every man who turned himself into an amateur curate for the moment always began by saying that, and then proceeded to break his word. I do want to preach to you. I want you to lead such a life as will make the world respect you. I want you to have a clean name and a fair record. I want you to get rid of the dreadful people you associate with. Don't shrug your shoulders like that. 
Don't be so indifferent. You have a wonderful influence. Let it be for good, not for evil. They say that you corrupt everyone with whom you become intimate, and that it is quite sufficient for you to enter a house for shame of some kind to follow after. I don't know whether that is so or not. How should I know? But it is said of you. I'm told things that it seems impossible to doubt. Lord Gloucester was one of my greatest friends at Oxford. He showed me a letter that his wife had written to him when she was dying alone in her villa at Mentone. Your name was implicated in the most terrible confession I ever read. I told him that it was absurd, that I knew you thoroughly, and that you were incapable of anything of the kind. Know you? I wonder do I know you? Before I could answer that, I should have to see your soul. To see my soul, muttered Dorian Gray, starting up from the sofa and turning almost white from fear. Yes, answered Hallward gravely and with deep-toned sorrow in his voice. To see your soul. But only God can do that. A bitter laugh of mockery broke from the lips of the younger man. You shall see it yourself tonight, he cried, seizing a lamp from the table. Come, it is your own handiwork. Why shouldn't you look at it? You can tell the world all about it afterwards if you choose. Nobody would believe you. If they did believe you, they would like me all the better for it. I know the age better than you do, though you will prate about it so tediously. Come, I tell you, you've chatted enough about corruption. Now you shall look on it face to face. There was a madness of pride in every word he uttered. He stamped his foot upon the ground in his boyish, insolent manner. He felt a terrible joy at the thought that someone else was to share his secret, and that the man who had painted the portrait that was the origin of all his shame was to be burdened for the rest of his life with the hideous memory of what he had done. Yes, he continued, coming closer to him and looking steadfastly in his stern eyes, I shall show you my soul. You shall see the thing that you fancy only God can see. Howard started back. This is blasphemy, Dorian, he cried. You must not say things like that. They are horrible, and they don't mean anything. You think so, he laughed again. I know so. That's what I said to you tonight. I said it for your good. You know I've always been a staunch friend to you. Don't touch me. Finish what you have to say. A twisted flash of pain shot across the painter's face. He paused for a moment, and a wild feeling of pity came over him. After all, what right had he to pry into the life of Dorian Gray? If he had done a tithe of what was rumoured about him, how much he must have suffered. Then he straightened himself up and walked over to the fireplace and stood there looking at the burning logs with their frost-like ashes and their throbbing cores of flame. I'm waiting, Basil, said the young man in a hard, clear voice. He turned round. What I have to say is this, he cried. You must give me some answer to those horrible charges that are made against you. If you tell me that they're absolutely untrue from beginning to end, I shall believe you. Deny them, Dorian, deny them. Can't you see what I'm going through? My God, don't tell me that you're bad and corrupt and shameful. Dorian Gray smiled. There was a curl of contempt in his lips. Come upstairs, Basil, he said quietly. I keep a diary of my life from day to day, and it never leaves the room in which it is written. I shall show it to you if you come with me. I, I, I shall come with you, Dorian, if you wish it. I see I've missed my train. That makes no matter. I can go tomorrow, but don't ask me to read anything tonight. All I want is a plain answer to my question. 
That shall be given to you upstairs. I could not give it here. You will not have to read long. Hi, this is Tony Walker. I would like to remind you that you can become a patron of the Classic Ghost Stories podcast. Patrons get access to the library of member-only stories, and I'm doing a new member-only story at least once per month at the moment. You'll also get the joy of supporting me in the work so I can continue to produce the regular podcast. You can become a patron by signing up at www.patreon.com forward slash Barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. So if you did feel that you wanted to support my work, it would be great to have you on board at Patreon. That was my part four of uh, Portrait of Dorian Gray, which represents chapters 10, 11, and 12. And they're quite different as chapters, I think. The first chapter is, of course, when Dorian comes home and he's got this French servant, forgive the accent, and he becomes quite suspicious. And we don't know whether, I mean, this appears to be an attempt to, to paint some kind of paranoia. And there are echoes in this as the three chapters go on of a number of stories. One is, of course, the Lord of the Rings and the ring that uh, it corrupts. And are we to understand that it is the portrait that corrupts? I actually don't think we are. But but certainly there is an evil magic to it in the same way that the ring and its its proximity, perhaps its proximity, corrupts Dorian Gray. But we see the um, Oscar Wilde's got something more to say about that in the second chapter of this this one, which is actually chapter 11. So, you know, chapter 10 is a fairly straightforward thing, and it, it, it advances the narrative. Then we've got him moving the picture upstairs in the dusty attic. He's quite unpleasant with his servants. But I don't know whether that actually is intended to make us think, oh, what a nasty man, what a nasty man, as I would say. Or actually, this is just how posh people were with servants back in the day. Who knows? I don't know. Um, some of my my great grandmother was in service for a bit, actually, a talent I hall um, to some of the Fletchers who were, um, do you know, Fletcher Christian, Mutiny on the Bounty, that family. And then she, my great grandmother went to run a boarding house in Blackpool in the day, and then she came back. My great grandfather, that is to say, he stayed, he died in Blackpool. He was an air raid warden in the Second World War. And in the First World War, he was gassed, actually, in, I don't know which battle. I want to say the Somme, but I don't know. And there's an interesting story about him. It's got nothing to do with Dorian Gray. But he was a coal miner, my great-grandfather, Tom. Tom Goodfellow. Therefore, he didn't need to go to war. But his brother, Joseph, was uh, worked on the, on the coal mines as a railway engineer. And so he was, he was already in the uh, Royal Engineers Volunteers. So as soon as the First World War started, off he went. And he was, um, he was with a forward sapper company that was ambushed and he was killed. And the day after, my great-grandfather Tom joined up, even though he didn't have to. He, I mean, yeah, he was gassed. And, and I don't, they say he wasn't the same man afterwards. But I remember my, my grandmother, Sam, never met my great-grandfather, but I, remember, I met my great-grandmother, though, his wife. But I remember my grandmother saying, uh, oh, I love me, Dad, she said. That that's very nice, isn't it? That these bonds of affection 
are real. You know, we have we, we, we watch all these programs on TV where family members are all very unpleasant to each other and they do despicable things to each other. But, you know, my experience has been that by and large, we love each other. So there you go. There's a little heartwarming thought. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. But, you know, you encourage me to have these comments that say, keep on rambling. Occasionally, I have somebody saying, don't ramble. But then, honestly, very few people, people seem to like these commentaries. So anyway, Dorian Gray. Of course, the other great Victorian stories that this reminds you of is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And if you check out my version of this, which exists on the channel, you just need to search. On the YouTube channel, I've started to arrange things into playlists. And I've got one called The Classics, and I think it's in that. And I've got Victorian stories, and it's going to be in that as well, probably. I've been efficient. So anyway, yeah, of course, and this split in a different way, but kind of the same, the same theme, that although Dr. Jekyll, and of course I get comments go, Dr. Jekyll, Dr. Jekyll, yeah, Dr. Jekyll, because apparently Louis Stevenson, Robert to me, Bob, it's an Edinburgh name, and he knew a bloke in Edinburgh when he was a lad or a young man called Jekyll. I don't know if it was Henry Jekyll, but it was Jekyll in any case. And so, yeah, Jekyll. So, yeah, so this idea, and uh, Henry Jekyll is actually a nicer bloke, although he's weak, uh, whereas um, Dorian Gray actually deliberately goes over to evil. So it's not quite the same thing, but it's this split personality of the evil and the good man. Obviously, it was important to Victorians. I don't think we do that now. We're not as obsessed with that theme now. What a nasty man. So basically, uh, he locks a picture up. That's, it's, a, it's a very useful chapter, that I thought. And then we have chapter 11, when he has this book that Harry, his nemesis, his bête noire, his aminance gris, sends him. And at the end of this long chapter, where nothing much happens, he says, uh, Dorian Gray has been poisoned by a book. And then that, and, and I think what they're talking about the poison is that his love of the sensuous. Remember, people, some people don't like the sensuous. Doctors don't like the sensuous. They don't want you to do sensuous things. There's a puritanical streak in our culture. You know, Dorian is on the other side of that. He's not puritanical at all. And they I don't know how he claims that the book poisoned him, but he has nine copies of it, and it's just really extravagant, isn't it? You know, and he has them done in different colours, and he has them printed, and it's just really over the top. I think the chapter then goes on at length, I found it a bit boring, C certainly to listen back to, to edit. But, the, the, you know, these pictures of all, all the jewels, it, it, what he's doing is a thing called conger is there, and uh, Dickens does it as well. And you just heap up lots of images, lots and lots and lots of images, and you play with the words. And there's something to be said for that, all the, all the exotic names of the jewels and all the exotic names of the different musical instruments. And so, we go, you know, basically we have a picture of a man who spends years lost in ennui, who, you know, has fads of the exotic, which was a big thing in Victorian times because we had Orientalism, didn't we? And uh, this, this romance of the East, people looking for something a little bit exotic. I think we look for it now in fantasy, to be honest, but that's another random thought related to Lord of the Rings, possibly. So the chapter got, went on, and I think um, its purpose was to show over the years that Dorian has become a bit effete and lost in sensuality i i mix up there's what the sensuous and sensual isn't there and there is a distinction and i do know it sometimes but then i forget because it's kind of slippery distinction 
but he's lost in the bad side of that. And we have a long chapter about this. And then, of course, what we have then is we have an instrumental chapter when he bumps into, and this is years later when his corruption is complete. He's told us, you know, show and tell. You're supposed to show, not tell. He's told us it. And we've had this long chapter about, actually metaphorically, about how he's gone to the bad. He's become sensual, sensuous. I'm just looking around for Shade the dog. I don't know where she is. And then we have this, oh, she's heard me. She's come upstairs. And then we have the third chapter where he bumps into Basil and he's, he's cut Basil because Basil is his good angel, remember? And he's had nothing to do with Basil because he's been under the influence of, of Harry. He's inseparable and he's ruined Harry's sister's reputation. But Harry doesn't seem to mind, which probably says a little bit about Harry. Yes, yeah, so the third chapter is, right, you want to see my soulmate, yeah? Here you go. And actually leaves us on a lovely cliffhanger. So I, th- I think chapter 10 was good, putting the picture up in the study, in the nursery, whatever it is, study. And then chap- the next long chapter is like, well, okay, I see what you're doing. And it isn't bad, but I found it a little bit boring. And then this chapter is, yeah, okay. It's quite dramatic. There's a bit of conflict and drama in it. Yeah, I'll show you. I'll show you, all right. There's more to come. There's a lot more to come. Hope you're not getting bored. I'm not getting bored of the story. Behave yourself, Shed. Just looking at me. She bit my ear last night. In the middle of the night, she keeps waking me up. She comes up to my bed and wakes me up. I think she's just checking I'm alive. But she doesn't need to do it every hour, you know. It's it's ruining me. Anyway, okay. Bye-bye. I'll speak to you soon. My podcast host, Captivate FM, have recently introduced something which means I can run adverts in the podcast. I don't want you to see this as a nuisance. I want you to see this as a way that I can be funded to free up more time to produce more content for you. If you know anyone who would like to advertise on this podcast, where we currently get around 10,000 listens a week, please get in touch via the email in the show notes.